The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Welcome to this week's show, and today we have Pat O'Mahony. So Pat is an award-winning, Dublin-based freelance TV, radio, producer, director and presenter with over 30 years full-time broadcasting experience in Ireland and the UK. Pat has worked with RTE, the BBC, ITV, Discovery as well as many others. He is also a blogger and podcaster at the award-winning Off Message podcast covering the media in all its entirety. Welcome to the show, Pat. Simon, how are you? You make me sound Good. like I've done stuff. I think you have. I think you've done a little I, bit. I, I think it's. I think it's by dint of uh, what you said er, uh, at the very top of it. Over thirty years, when you hang around for that long, you kind of, you know, by by dint of 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 just being there, you get to do stuff. Yes. Well, I think once you get over the thirty-year mark, you know you're probably a professional. You know it's time to go before someone finds you out. <laughs> get, yes. get the hell out of Dodge. The, the, someone said to me one day, this is like this is your life. And I said, well, I'm not Eamon Andrews and I don't have a red book. No so red book. There's yeah, a small yeah. difference. But in, there, there are some similarities, you know. So listen, Pat, you're, are you in Rathmines? Is that correct? I'm in Dublin 6, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lovely Dublin, Dublin 6. 6. But I mean, I, I'm, you know, uh, I've moved all over the place. I... Uh, I first moved to Dublin from Kildare. Well, actually, yeah, I first moved to Dublin from Kildare in 83. Before that, I'd spent a little bit of time in Limerick. Um, my first venture at going to third level education, I did PE in Limerick. Um, but I kicked a wall one day and that kind of wasn't the best idea in the world. <laughs> so uh, I went back to college five uh, five years later. So 78 was when I went to Limerick, 83. I went to, um, I got the communications uh, course in what's now DCU, uh, NIHE. Yeah, it was NIHE. The National yeah. Institute for Higher Education. Uh, there was two of them. There was one in Limerick and one in Dublin. And It uh, sounds uh, like uh, the place where, it, the first name sounds like the place where they test the monkeys for NASA. The second name is more, you know, Well, I uh, think the, jo- the, the joke in, in the college was that they were fed up getting post for the Northern Ireland housing executive. <laughs> so I, I don't know how true that is. But uh, so that's when I first lived. So I, I, I was, you know, uh, Fibsborough, uh, Ballymun, Glasnevin area, uh, back to Fibsborough, then over across to Rag- the lovely Raglan Road, Sandy Mount, Ranala. Then I went to London, lived in London for 11 years. And I, I came back, and this is kind of frightening, I'm back longer than I was away. So I'm back 12 years from London. And uh, I've ended up here. I love Rathmines. Um, it's, you know, it's just a great location. I don't know how well you know it, but it's just easy to get. Yeah, to I, I know it. I know um, kind of Ranala around that area better because I lived in Dublin for a year in the 90s. And All right. uh, I remember I worked, I was actually working as a security guard would you believe it? Like in, do you know that building in Ranala, the um, the Carol's old cigarette? Oh, down on, down on the canal, down on the canal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. used to be in that every every day, um, every night doing security work, the most boring work ever. But I used to sneak my guitar in and play a little. During the nineties. 
When was it? During the 90s, I think it was, yeah. I only lived around the corner from there between uh, up off Norbrook Road, which is only around the corner from that Carl's building, as it was the Carl's building. It no longer is, uh, um, of course. Uh, I lived uh, in Ranala um, between 91 and 98 when I went to London. Um, but I always liked, there's a great poster. I have it. Uh, someone gave it to me, but I've yet to frame it. Uh, the COVID happened and I kind of put framing on, on the back boiler. Um, but to, to picked a, a drawing, a line drawing of the clock tower in Rathmines. And it says, Rathmines, Ranala, but without the notions. <laughs> That's really good, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes. Ranala is nicely gentrified. Nicely gentrified. There was, a time, yeah. there was a time during the 70s when Ranala and Rathmines were kind of interchangeable. They were both flatland, uh, but no longer. No, and, and but you know, that time I used to live on the opposite side. I was living over beside Croke Park in the, the in, in um ah, okay. But so I used to walk over or get a cab sometimes, but uh, yeah, you, wow. you know you're going to it's the more gentrified side of town, of course. Well, obviously, I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got past security. You obviously no, weren't in duty the day. The, the, the most ex- yeah, yeah, the most yeah. exciting thing for me was at night. I would look out the window and I would see the foxes coming uh, along the canal, stealing the ducks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Wow, stealing Stealing the ducks. ducks. That's that's the first time. Stealing the ducks, as in killing the ducks. I don't think they were supposed to do it, so that was why I say stealing. (laughs) I think that's what foxes are actually bred to do. I think that's their only... Dublin City Council would call it stealing, probably. we may not want them to do it, but I think that's their gig. Yes, yes. So listen, let, let's go back a little. So, so like you're, in, were you born in Kildare or mm-hmm. were you born in Dublin? Born in Kildare. You were born in Kildare. Kildare Town. So you, you, so in Kildare Town, and you spent, did you spend much of your life there, like the, the 10 years or 15 years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I went to uh, primary school there. I went to boarding school. Um, uh, for secondary school. Um, so I actually, I, I kind of got out of Kildare from that perspective relatively early. I went off to boarding school and I'm the only one in the family who went to boarding school um, when I was 12. Uh, because I got the naivety of youth, I thought I had religious ideas back then. You know, uh, a De La Salle brother came round to the school, the De La Salle primary school I was in in Kildare and talk to us about being a brother. And now remember, this is the 70s. This is the early 70s. And said, uh, anyone here ever think of becoming a priest or a brother? Uh, and I was the one in the family, for some reason, who had been told by aunts and grannies and whatever, that, oh, you, you'd make a lovely priest. You'd make a great priest. So when you hear that often, it's like advertising. It's like politics. If you repeat something often, enough, people believe you. So I stuck my hand up. Um, and followed through in it and had five great years, three of them down in the De La Salle in uh, Castletown, which is no more um, as a school. Castletown outside Mount Rath uh, in County Leash. And then if you hung around for another, there was no transition year then. You went from third year to fifth year, unquestioningly. Uh, you didn't think, where's fourth year? You just knew that you went from third year to fifth year. Um, and uh, fifth and sixth year were done down the De La Salle in Waterford 
but we, so Dallas Allen Waterford was a big boarding school. So were the, the boarders, there were the day boys. And then we, the small, maybe 10, 12, who came from Castletown, we stayed out in Faith Lake House uh, outside Waterford, which is now a hotel and golf course. Very fancy. I haven't been back since. But, uh, so uh, at that stage, I realized I didn't want to become a Delisle brother. And uh, I hightailed it out of there as quickly as I could. I actually, I remember, like, they asked you around Easter time of your last year there. So it was Easter 78. And uh, I remember going, do I, do I not, do I, do I not? What do you know at that age? You know, um, they've stopped doing that because the return they were getting on it. Like our year, no one went forward. No one went on. In fact, the only person who did was from De La Salle in Waterford itself, who'd nothing got to do with us. So they were spending all their money on us and someone slipped in the back door, if you know what I mean. So um, they, they stopped doing that. They realized that bringing kids into the system at that early age was a waste of time. In your family, were you, like, was there, had you brothers and sisters? Were you only ch- an only child? Oh, yeah, big family, big family. Uh, eight of us all together. Um, I was third, so two fellas older than me. Seven fellas, one girl. Big family. Big family. Last of the big families, you know. I think after that, it quickly went six foot forward, you know. So, yeah, we were. But my parents' generation would have had 12 or 13 in their, in their family. I mean, in, in my family, there was, you know, four girls and two boys. And that was kind of an average size family that time. Uh, but I remember being in school with uh, uh, one of my schoolmates and he's, there was 11 children in his family. Wow. And, you know, yeah, there yeah. was no problem. That's just the way things were, no? There wasn't a lot of birth control uh, flying around Ireland at the time. So, uh, and there was also a dependency on, you know, the farming. Uh, uh, there was a much higher percentage of farming community. And so, you know, they needed the children to work the farm, the practicalities. So once that disappeared and once birth control arrived, the dunk. The dunk is the technical term. Vidunk. Yeah, good dunk, it's yeah. gone. Yeah, so yeah. tell me, when you were a teenager, then what kind of hobbies and, you know, activities did you get up to? I mean, were you, was it music mainly or did you do other stuff? Um, the one thing I, I regret is that I never really learned to play a musical instrument. I can string a few chords together in a guitar. Um, and one of the De La Salle brothers in Castletown made attempts to teach me the piano. But I was always too sporty. So I would be, which is why I ended up in in Thomond doing PE in when I left school at seventy eight. Uh, I was I I would be playing basketball, Gaelic football, soccer, badminton, tennis, whatever, uh, uh, all the time. And um, I had very little time for anything else. So I sang a little in the choir as well, the school choir. Uh, and every year they would put on, you know, a musical, certainly the first three years. This was down in Dallas, South Castletown, and I, you know, sang in that. So I sang a lot, and I sang in the choir. I was a great soprano, but then my voice broke, and that was the end of that. And I didn't sing again. I've never sang since, so the voice is untrained. You know what I mean? You need to, it's like a muscle, you know, you need to. Yeah. And I you need I to didn't. work it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just, I didn't. Um, uh, it's like it's one of those things. Um, I can still sing it, sing hold a note, you know, but just not very well. Um, so sport was really my thing. So when it 
when when it came to like you know I played, we won a lot of basketball Leinster basketball uh, trophies and, and stuff uh, every year at school um, when I was in Castletown. Uh, later on, before I bust my foot, I was playing. I began playing minors for the Round Towers in Kildare, and the next week they had me playing the under twenty ones, and the next week I was on the senior panel. Uh, and so the Kildare County Miners went, oh, we'll have you. And before I got to do the trial, I bust my foot, which put an end to that. So, you know. I don't want to laugh, but that's hard luck, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I looked well with a Brady's Ham logo on, on, on the front yeah. of a white jersey. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's what happened. Um, so. Uh, yeah, and I play. I mean, when I when I was in secondary school, uh, you know, that fifth sixth year, we had PE for the first time ever as a class, and I used to love it. Um, and so that gave me the inkling that maybe I wanted to be a PE teacher. Um, I quickly found out when I did teaching practice in Limerick that actually I'd make an awful teacher. Why was that? Well, there's a huge difference between coaching and teaching. If you are teaching. If you're coaching, let's say there's basketball, for instance, let's say there's 10 and uh, there are all 10 of you are are good and are gagging to get on the team. And you may have even 11, 12, you may have a few stragglers around the edge that are that want to get into the squad. So maybe you're 15 and they'll turn up twice, three times a week and they'll train hard and they'll improve and. You'll work on tactics and you'll you know play games and you'll see them improving and and there's a spirit about it. When you're a PE teacher, you have a class of let's say twenty, and let's say uh, whatever sport you happen to be doing or activity you happen to be doing um, for that term, uh, you'll find that five or six of them may have done it already and so have some skill in it and are maybe good at it and enjoy doing it and yeah. will take part. Yeah. You have 10 or 11, you know, 12 who are, eh, they place different sports, but they may not have done this. But if you impress them enough and you work with them, they'll they'll take part. Um, but you only have them once a week, so they never improve. They just take part. And then you have three or four or five who are only there because they're not old enough to leave school. You know, I remember, yes. I remember one guy turning up, we were doing, we were doing a, a range of fitness things when I was in secondary school, and one of them involved uh, uh, doing some cross-country running. Now, it wasn't cross-country. It was out along it was the streets around Waterford. And one fellow turned up in his platform shoes to run. <laughs> Elton John. It's like, you know, so you'd have to deal with that. So there's never, it, you know, it's a different thing, you know. So um, my old man said to me many years later, when I had kind of started working, um, doing a bit for Hot Press, bit for 2FM or whatever, before I broke full time into any broadcasting, he said to me, um, he said, you break in your foot all those years ago. I said, that was a bit of a blessing in disguise for you, wasn't it, career-wise? And I looked at him and I was really surprised because up until then, I didn't think we were thinking along the same wavelength. But I, he was right. I had thought that. But it was the he, he was the first one to articulate it. Yeah, and again on one on the blogs on the off message blog, I wrote yeah. about my luckiest break may well have been a physical one on the foot because you know I was going this way and 
suddenly I had to go that way. It's funny, isn't it? Because we were, I was talking yesterday with somebody and we were talking about like encouragement from parents and how, you know, sometimes there's only one or two in the family or an uncle or a father or whoever and says, you know, keep doing what you're doing. You know, you'll get there. But the majority of people are kind of looking going, are you crazy doing this or will, will this amount to anything? But it's funny how, you know, looking back, he kind of saw that and he went, well, you know, that was maybe the best thing to happen to you. Well, in fairness, and, and it, uh, there's a few things that are interesting about what you said. A, in our house, we weren't encouraged particularly. We were less loose at go and try whatever you want. There was no... I mean, sporting-wise, yes, Dad was really into sport, Mum was into sport, and, and they loved seeing us. They'd come to games and, and all that. But career-wise, it was your call. And they would support you, but they wouldn't push you. They didn't want you to become anything specific. It was, if you decided to go down that role, fine. The other thing is, um, I often wonder about the cliche of keep going at it you'll get there. That's said by successful people, you know. Most people aren't successful. And sometimes a good hitchhiker knows when to take a train. Yes. <laughs> when, when it's time to stop. There are times when you're just knocking your head against some mad bugger's wall, as, as this Pink Floyd once sang. And you just realize, actually, do you know what? I, I could stay knocking my head against and there's a possibility that it'll crack wide, wide open and I'll step through. But you know what? Maybe I should just go off over in this direction and try something else. Sometimes run something in tandem. Like, you know, I think as you get older, you go, look, this is not being as fruitful as I'd like. So I'm not going to commit all my time to it. Don't put all my eggs in one basket. I'll keep it going, but on a more minimal level. Yeah, uh, there's lots of different tactics that you can choose and none of them are right and none of them are wrong. Uh, because you never, you only travel one path. So you never get to compare what the result would have been if you'd gone the other way. So you never know. You never know. You do what you got to do. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, you know. Yeah, that's it. So, so for you, you know, when you look back to your teens and obviously, you know, as you got into, into media and everything later on, Music obviously played a big part in your life. So what kind of music did you listen to in your teens and what inspired you? Music uh, played has always been there. I never for a minute thought that I might, you know, end up playing music on the radio. Uh, um, but I remember uh, mum and dad, I only found out relatively recently but it was because they, there was they got some small inheritance when an uncle died or something but they bought uh a stereogram oh yes for on wooden legs yes a record player that you could stack uh vinyl on stack six or seven albums or six or seven singles and when one the handle needle lifted up back out next one fell down and played that and when it got to the end the next one fell down and it played that. Kind of like a home jukebox. Kind of, except you, you had no buttons to press. Yeah. Um, and, and then on the other side, a, a radio that had l long wave and medium wave and whatever. And mum and dad bought a load of records when they got it. And I still remember them. In fact, I still have some of them in the vinyl stack over there. Bing Crosby, a Christmas album. Uh, Larry Cunningham, 
the Ludlows, Joe Lost plays Glenn Miller, um, the sound of music. Oh, no, was it South Pacific? It was South Pacific, I think, and a few others. And as a kid, I was only, I was in maybe nine, ten, when, you know, when it arrived, eight, nine, ten. I used to love this. I used to listen to it all the time, I, you know. And then my brother, the eldest brother, borrowed and brought home Black Sabbath's Volume 4. Ah, that changed. It was like a draw. I just, wow. I still, I have it. In fact, only recently, I sent someone a Spotify link to it. And I said, go listen to that. You, I know you don't like metal, but that's a great album. And it stands the test mm. of time. Um, and I'm not even a huge Black Sabbath fan. Um, I would think Paranoid is rubbish in comparison. Yes. Volume four is where it's at. Um, and then he brought home Rory Gallagher's Live in Europe, Horselips, Happy to Meet, Sorry to Part, Yes, Close to the Edge, Mott the Hoople's Mott. Uh, I remember he bought Neil Diamond's Beautiful Noise, produced by Robbie Robertson. And uh, all this just, I was like, wow, I loved it. And I used to listen to them over and over. And I used to tape them. And there was no direct inputs in those days. I had a microphone in front of one of the speakers because my kid brother, who was only a baby at the time, had put a knife through the other speaker. Very rock and roll. <laughs> hey, I know. He was three and he was already in rock and roll destruction mode. And uh, and I used to tape them and I'd be like, shh, taping, shh. And Focus were another one. Do you remember Dutch band Focus? I heard that name, but I don't know if I ever listened to them. There you go. Uh, real prog rock, but you know, but great stuff. And then, um, you know, I'm listening to all this and someone else introduces me to Jethro Tolan. I remember Pink Floyd and at school, Queen and uh, the Eagles and, you know, Wings. And, you know, you just heard it in the ether. And then Punk happened. And I was going, oh, she's what's this? And I thought, oh, I really like this. Yeah, okay, I get that. This is different. I heard the sales pitch. You know, if you like punk, you can't like Mike Goldfield. Or, uh, and I went, sorry, lads, go piss on yourselves. I can like both. You got into punk music, and was that... Well, I got into all kinds. No, no, it wasn't that I got into... I, I, it just, it was added to the mix. Right. To me, I'm with, I'm with I think it was Dizzy Gillespie. It was John Coltrane. I think it was Dizzy who said there's two kinds of music. There's good music and then there's the other kind. So I've never been stuck with genres. Um, I, I just like that's what I used to love about doing uh, filling in for Dave uh, fanning on 2FM back in the 90s and doing something like Fool's Gold on RT Gold uh, uh, before they decided they'd no money um, was you just played good music. It it, it it could be good country, good hip hop, good jazz, good metal, good Brit pop, good indie pop, good, you know, trad, good folk, whatever. I'd hate to do a specialized show where you had to play like an Irish show. So you could only play because then you have to play the good and the bad a country show where you have to play the good, you know. But if you just have a, a you know, a rough mix kind of show. You can play whatever you want. Just cream the, you know, cream off the top layer. The cream rises. And that's the thing, you know, I've always been the same way. I, like 
people say, what kind of music do you like? And, you know, I know everybody goes, oh, I'm very open-minded. I like all types of music. But I, I remember, you know, being a youngster and, and listening to the Waterboys and then getting into Guns N' Roses and then Metallica and then back to the Waterboys. And my brother was a mod, so he listened to, you know, The Jam and The Who and Style Council. Yeah. So, you yeah, know, yeah. and my yeah. sister was a huge Smiths fan. So you, we had all okay. these kind of influences in the house. And... um but now, I mean, I could be, I could go to a Metallica concert, and then I'm looking up to see is Mike Scott going to Madrid, or I'm a huge Travis fan. Mm. So for me, it's about music. And and actually, I did an interview yesterday with John Spillane, and I remember when jo I heard John Spillane's oh, yeah. music, and I thought, wow, I wouldn't normally be into this, but it's a, it's really cool. It's different, you know. So music, yeah. it's yeah, how yeah. music yeah, affects yeah. you. It's not about genres. Sometimes you have to make a bit of a, a deliberate effort. Uh, I remember. The first time I really heard hip hop, um, I was uh, in a, a van with a band, a Dublin band called Hallelujah Freedom, who were managed by two mates of mine, and neither were available to take them to Belfast for a gig in the limelight. This was about 87, 88. And so they asked me if I'd babysit them for the day and pretend to be the manager. <laughs> so I went up with them and the lads were into their soul and groove and funk, but they were also discovering hip hop. And I remember someone put on one of the Public Enemy albums in the car, in the in the red high ace van as we trundled up before there were motorways, the main road to Belfast. And this thing yeah. came on and I went, what is this? And all the lads were going, you know, and I was going, wow, God, it's good, but I'm going to have to investigate further. And I did. And, you know, um, when I was in Greece, in living in Greece in 82, um, there was a lot of reggae around. And it was the first time I got reggae. I wasn't even stoned. You know, I, I yes, yeah. immersion and re repetition. I kind of go, ah, OK, now I get it. Um, and but there's bad reggae too. There's bad hip hop. Of course there is. So, you know, sometimes you've got to make a bit of an effort or uh, be lucky and hear the good stuff before you hear the bad stuff before it manages to turn you off. So the thing is, I think with music, you know, it it has to captivate you in some way and bring you along for the ride. And as you said, it doesn't matter if it's reggae or trash mm -hmm. metal or trip hop or trance. I know if it's trash metal now. Maybe He's if it's trash, trash metal, metal, maybe that might be that might be pushing it just a little too far. <laughs> That's your limit. That's your limit. Just a little. So, and actually, we were just before we we kind of came on air there. We were looking at your record collection. You know, behind you, you have the, this really good CDs, yeah. and you, you must have multitudes of records there. Well, I bought my first record around. 1976 and it was a bargain bin cheapy uh it was excerpts from jesus christ superstar for 50p in a in a you know it wasn't and it was on the pickwick label it wasn't even the original cast i don't know if you're old enough to remember those top of the pops albums where you'd get girls in bikinis on the cover and there were compilation albums but they weren't the original artists doing them they were like supermarket music exactly and then Kate, I, I remember we bought a few of those, but I don't know where they went. But then Kate Tell entered the market. And Kate Tell 
had these compilations that were the real thing. And I still have one or two. They're very scratched because we were kids at the time. They had thrown around the place. But I have the first three, I think, of those KTL compilations that we bought in the house. And they were the original artist. But um, the first proper album I bought, I, I don't remember because I remember getting uh, one Christmas as a kid asking for nothing else but albums as Christmas presents. Um, and uh, But I used to love coming to Dublin, uh, getting getting the the train up there were no buses well there were infrequent buses then and spending the day maybe two days staying with friends or relatives and trawling the bargain bins and going home with bags of records that you bought for only a couple of quid they weren't second hand they were just ones that hadn't sold but there was a lot of good stuff in there um so you know that that's what initially seeded it and then I was very lucky after we taped everything. Like if someone had a good album, you taped it and you got to yeah. it that way. Um, the first radio project I did when I went to uh, NIHE, as it was then before it became DCU, the first radio project was a program called Home, Is Home Taping Really Killing Music? Because that was the thing at the time. You know, there was these, the cross, the, the pirate symbol. Yes. Yeah. It was illegal to, to tape records onto cassettes. I remember seeing a thing in a magazine once and it showed two crumpled up little pieces of paper and it said, are these the music industry's biggest enemies? Because <laughs> you remember you used to shove them in the top of the tape so you could record. Oh, yeah. Well, well, a little bit of sellotape over the top of it. But what we used to do was chew them like that and stick them in. And yeah, and, and so I was... Re-record everything. But there was a physical in your cassette deck. There was a physical hook that came down. So when that wasn't there, it was up and you could press the record button. When it was down, you could. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, so you, I, I was always listening to stuff, even if I didn't have the money to buy it. And then I remember after college, I started doing some work with Hot Press. And that's when I got my, I blagged my first free albums. Okay. So I would be going to review someone and they'd send me the album and they might send me some of their back catalogue. And, uh, and then I, I like, that was 87-ish direction. Like two years later, 89, I was in RTE. I was, I got the head to toe gig and um, I was looking after the music on the show and I was, Every time I'd be over, yes. uh, I would bump into Jim Lockhart or Ian Wilson, Dave Fanning's producers at the time. And I'd say, when he's not around, I'll do it. I'll fill in for him. Oh, go away? And I said, no, no, I'm serious. I'll do it. They said, did you stop annoying us? And eventually I pestered them so much that they they did. They let me at it. Had you been um, working on, on any other radio stations before that, or were you mainly in production? No, but I had done pirate radio. I had done pirate radio in Kildare, outside Newbridge Town, the, the next uh, town across, down in a field somewhere, a caravan um, out in the middle of nowhere. No one listening, probably. Uh, but it was it was great. It was a great way to spend a summer. I wasn't paid for it. Uh, I still have a cassette tape of me doing one of them. I have to digitize it. Um, and that's where I caught the bug. That's where I caught the bug. And about the same time in 79, Radio 2, as it was called then, started. And um, I would listen to it a lot. And 
then in 1980, I had the first of two operations on my foot that I had bust down in PE college. And it was the lucky break. My lucky break. And it was so such a serious operation. I spent four months in plaster afterwards. Um, and during that time, I listened to a lot of radio. The one thing I regret, a lot of music radio. The one thing I regret is that I didn't, at the time, pick up a guitar and learn to play it during that time. I, I did much later on. I learned uh, for a, 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 way, a mate's wedding. You know, we got up and we sang four or five songs, and, you know, but I should have. Yeah. Had, anyway, I didn't. I listened to a lot of and I used to be go. I hear the DJs on it. I could do that. I could be better. They're rubbish. I began to get a critical ear, not only for the music, but for the presentation. So when I when I rocked up to Jim and, and Ian in the radio building, I kind of had a bit of confidence that I could do it, even though I hadn't really. Pro- so they gave me a tryout. And once I was filling in for Dave and looking after music on head to toe, I would get music all the time sent to me. Um, or I was yeah. around the radio building and God bless them, but the daytime jocks hadn't a clue. And they'd be getting all this music. And unless it was in the top, 20 or 50 they hadn't a clue and you'd be chatting with them and they'd be emptying their locker of you know there was a, a letter box that they'd each have with their name on it and the, the record people had just throw the you know the, the vinyl or cds in and then every so often they'd clear it out and you might be standing chatting with them and they'd be going and they'd be throwing stuff away and you'd be looking at it going the Egypts, that's brilliant they don't know who that is but i do and I'd go, thanks, lads. I'll take that. I'll take it. Yeah, absolutely. I do. Give me that. So, um, uh, and then in London, I didn't do very much. Uh, like I, I went to London in 98 uh, and I didn't do any music radio there. I tended to move in. I moved into TV and was doing uh, features and documentaries. So I used I used, I used scour. I brought over just a, I didn't bring over much of the record collection. It was still in storage. Did you, um, when you went into RTE, like you, uh, was that after you came out of uh, college, you know, did you get a placement in RTE or how did you actually get into RTE? That in itself is a story. Uh, I, um, I was, I did uh, communications in NIHE, uh, 83 to 86. Um, while I was in second year, 84, 85, I was entertainments officer. I won that. That went. To, that was a, it was a part-time gig. You were on the student union executive, so you, you had to be elected. And I won that election by 27 votes. And there was at least 100 people who hadn't a clue who went eeny, meeny, miny, mo. So 27 votes was nothing. Uh, but it, it changed things because I quickly realized that it, the gig, the college was growing at such a rate that actually very soon the entertainment gig was going to be too big for a student to do. And sure enough, when I graduated in 86, they made the job of ENS officer full-time. And you had to sit and interview, apply for it, like a, an ordinary job. And I did, and I got it, I suppose, having done it already. But it wasn't big enough, the college wasn't big enough for a full-time entertainment officer on their own. So actually you did entertainments and publications. And one of the things I did was I updated the student union handbook and I asked Hot Press to come in on that, to give me a hand with the layout because this was a big professional job and it was worth investing in. 
And then they subsequently asked me to do something. And that's where I started writing for them. I wasn't very good as a writer. At the, uh, maybe I'm still not. Certainly at the time, I thought I, I, I had a clue. I was, I was chancing my arm. But I ended up doing some writing for other people, including the long defunct Dublin Event Guide. And the Dublin Event Guide, a fortnightly free publication around Dublin. I did a TV column, but it wasn't a what's on TV. It was how television works and why some things work and some things don't. And in late 88, I went out to RTE to interview Moya Doherty, who was a senior producer in RTE television about a show she was making um, and the background on it, etc. And half an hour after the, I'd switched my tape recorder off, my old-fashioned analog cassette recorder. Uh, the interview was over, but we were still talking. And we were talking about the lack of a good music series on RT television. And uh, to some degree, the kind of the fact that they needed more young presenters on the station. And at the time, I was a bit younger than I am now. <laughs> a small bit. So as I was going, she said to me, this was maybe late November 88. She said, come back to me after Christmas. And what we'll do is we'll put in a proposal for a music TV series. And I looked at her and I went, a what? A proposal? What do you mean? Do programs just not arrive on screen? Fully <laughs> formed. Like someone has to pitch and propose. And oh, right. OK. OK. So, all right. So we did. And we put a lot of work into it in early 89. And uh, we got it to the last two. There was two ideas they were toying with. And in the end, they went with uh, Bill Hughes did a series when he was at Green Apple called Seven Bands on the Up. And that had a sponsor attached. And there's a huge hint in the name. Seven Up sponsored this series where they did gigs with seven bands. They recorded them in the SFX, A House, Blue in Heaven, Something Happens, um, Fat Lady Sings, you know. And, uh, and and they kind of, I don't know if there were any bands from outside Dublin. There probably were, but I can't remember. Um, and uh, so it never happened. And Moya said to me when we got the thumbs down, and of course, Moya went on to run Riverdance. She, she was the exec producer on Eurovision in 94. And she... No, uh, John, not Bill, uh, John, her husband, John, John will kill me because I can't remember his surname. Not Reynolds, no, it's not, no. John McColgan, of course, John McColgan, yes. So anyway, okay. John, John and, John and, um, John and, uh, and Moyu were Riverdance. But at the time, like this was six, seven years before Riverdance. So Moya said to me, uh, after she gave me the bad news that they weren't going to commission our great TV music series, she said, um, don't worry about it. You know, that's the way this business works. You know, you pitch a lot of ideas, only occasionally do they take off. But she said, in the meantime, um, uh, I, have a, I have a gig, you should probably go for head to toe or looking for new presenters. And I said to her, what's head to toe? And she said, it's the fashion show. And I went, oh, yeah. Look, you know, look at me. for." So she said, yeah. She said, you probably won't get it, but it'll be a good experience. And three months later, I got the gig. 
but but can can I just say can I just say I remember you on TV that time. You were pretty fashionable, no? You were you had a different style. They styled me well. I mean, I got into it. And in fairness, I did it for five years. You know, when I started, it would never happen now. It would never happen now that you would give a specialist program to someone who knew shag all about the topic. By the time I was finished, I did. So, but now they would get someone who is involved in the business to front it. Rightly so, like you'd get a historian to do a history program, an architect to do it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so basically, uh, Marty Whelan had left 2FM to go to the new radio station, Century. And he did it on bad terms. He did it on bad terms. It took him a long time to get back into RTE. But he lost three TV gigs because of it. He was doing Head to Toe. He was doing Where in the World. Theresa Lowe got that. And he was doing a music program that didn't last for long, I think called Videophile. And Gareth O'Callaghan got that. And uh, uh, so um, because Marty left, yes, they decided that. to revamp the whole thing. And that's where we came in. So when we started Head to Toe in 89, that was actually the second year of the show. And I stayed with it for five years. Uh, and for it was a great learning curve. It was a great program to work on because you did everything. And every day was a learning day. And when that learning curve tent started to taper off and we were just doing things like we had done them in the past, I thought, right, the, the content doesn't interest me. I'm out of here. And that's why I left in 94. And you went to London then, was it? Didn't go to London until 98. I did a lot of radio between here, between 94 and 98. I mean, I drifted. I did a, I did a, a careers thing out in Ardmore just for one series. I remember we did Fela TV in in house in Semple Stadium and then still obviously you were still in doing the radio because you did the Dave Fanning show on and off to, till 98 no? I was I was never uh, a, a staff member I was always a freelancer so when I finished that uh, when I said to the lads I, I waited until I knew they were coming back for 94 95 they'd made the decision and that's when I said right lads I won't be here I'm 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 out here I'm good enough, and no one was surprised. In fairness, so I then uh, you know hustled other gigs and came up with ideas, and some people approached me. I did a careers thing um, uh, out in we recorded out in Ardmore that for one season. Fela, remember we were at Fela '94 in Sample Stadium. Um, some highlights I think appeared. On network two. You did access all areas too, didn't you? Ninety six. Um, Ninety five. We I did sample. We did uh, fail in Cork live. Now that went out live over the weekend. All along, I I was doing bits and more bits of radio. So there was a, a program on Radio One called the Live Register, which was about work and unemployment. And I they asked me to do some reports for them. So I started gradually doing some bits and pieces for them. And then in 90, uh, hang on, nine, let me see. So 94, 96, so about 95, um, they approached me with an idea for a program uh, about what we spent our money on. So it, it could be anything. And we called it Off Your Trolley. Shut the trolley. 
so I did that for about a year uh, with uh, Phil Crutchley, a, a radio producer, and I went out on the road with the little recorder and recorded interviews with people and we put music to it in the studio. And then the next thing was I, I pitched this idea about the music business called Access All Areas. And they initially said no uh, for whatever reason. And then uh, I was working away on Off Your Trolley. And uh, uh, a few months later, uh, someone said to me, you know that music business idea you had? Will you change the title of it? change the emphasis a little and re-pitch it and I went I don't know why you're telling me this but I will and lo and behold it got commissioned and the first thing I did was I changed the name back to Access All Aries <laughs> and so for it was supposed to my initial contract was for 15 programs it ran for over 70 and at the end I had yes. to say to them guys this has become formulaic let's give it a breather let's 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 take it off air and let's see if we can do something new with it or whatever. And that was early 98. And all along during the 90s, whenever Dave was away, Dave Fanning was away, and I, was, I sat in for him on 2FM. And that could be for as little as maybe four, six weeks a year, or it could be. He was doing lots of stuff in the UK. He was doing tours here with bands. Uh, he was dipping into television over there. He was doing radio over there. I could be doing 12 weeks of the year for Dave. And it was great because I just played music and I got paid for it. Um, and uh, and that was up, up until the last one I did was early 98. And uh, at which point I didn't have a gig. Uh, I'd access all areas was off uh, air. Um, I pitched ideas, nothing had come. And I said, I had, I had sent over a lot of showreels to London and the UK uh, when I left Head to Toe in 94. But because I didn't live over there, I'd had a few meetings, but nothing had come of it. So I thought, if I don't move, if I don't go now, I'll, I, it, it'll be too late. I'll never go. So I went. I went in, I went in 98. And uh, I very quickly, very luckily, landed a gig as a reporter on Watchdog. And that only lasted a year because I had no interest in consuming. They shouldn't have given me the gig in the first place. Uh, I, I didn't, um, I had no interest in consumer affairs. And I wasn't particularly impressed with Anne Robinson either. But I don't want to say to her about that because she'd probably sue the trousers. Yes, she's a mean woman. I would, I, no comment, Your Honour. But I didn't enjoy the experience, uh, my my year working on Watchdog, and so after that, I I did some bits and pieces presenting, but not not enough. So I began to pitch ideas, and I moved into pr producing, and uh, eventually directed, and um, so towards so in 07 and 08, I directed stuff something for Channel Five for Channel Four, and then for Channel Five. And in uh, early, oh, late 08, 2008, I had two ideas that Channel 5 were really interested in wanting to do. And they were huge ideas. And myself and the executive producer at the production company, like every time we met them, just the dollar signs in our eyes were going, cha-ching, cha-ching. Mm -hmm. And then 
we started to hear about subprime mortgages and Enron and uh, financial collapse and advertising falling off a cliff. And before we knew it, the two ideas were dead in the water. And that was the last time I worked in London. I was just getting onto the, the, the run directing, you know, the bottom rung of the directing ladder when the ladder was pulled away. And I went like you did a lot of production as well. And I, I was looking at some of your shows there in, in Ireland, obviously, with the panel and six in the city and these shows. So that was kind of you were working with the BBC at the same time, was it? Most. No, most of that was when I came back. I mean, the best the best thing I did in London, undoubtedly, was in 2003 was Reporters at War, it was a series we made on the history of war journalism for Discovery. Won an Emmy, mostly because of the director. Uh, terrific series. Stand over that. Best best eight months of my work career ever, no doubt. Uh, while I was over there in 2000, um, I came. I was a- asked if I'd uh, give them a hand with the broadcast pilot of the panel. So I came. It was a one-off. I came home to do that. While I came to came, while I was at home, I edited a radio series I'd already recorded in the UK about second-generation Irish people over there for Radio One. Uh, so I did that in early two thousand and I don't know, I can't remember, maybe two thousand four or something. Um, uh, and but then went back, you know. So most of the work I was doing through all the periods in the UK. I came home because an idea I had pitched to RTE about the news we searched for on the internet every year got commissioned. Spent a lot of time developing it over there and got it commissioned and came home to make it. So we made that at the end. It was an end of year news review, but it looked at the news we searched for ourselves online. What was piquing our curiosity? And we were able to tell that from Google searches, from their data. So we made that at the end of 2009, 2010, and 2011, at which point RT decided they had no more money. So I was home at that stage. So I've stayed ever yeah. since. And I've mostly, mostly freelanced in radio, but done some bits of TV as well over here. Sort of that, it depends. You know, I, I, people say, which do you prefer? I like both. Which what happens depends on who what the phone rings or it doesn't ring. Um, uh, I pitch ideas to both, you know. So I've made documentaries for Radio One. I've produced uh, Fanning on two on two FM, which is interesting. After all those years back in the nineties of filling in for him, you know, I was now producing him. Uh, when his producer was on holidays or sick or away or doing other gigs. So that was funny. It was fun, but it was great fun as well. It was, it was good crack. I noticed there, actually, I only made the link when I was looking at researching you, you was that you did that show Six in the City and one of my old bandmates, Tom Pine, was on that show. And I was like, oh, that's right. I Tom, That's where I met Tom. Uh, I met Tom in Galway. We did the, the pilot first. So it was it, it, they, the company made a series afterwards. But we did a pilot where we had um, they came. Someone came up with a name before they then decided that would make a great name for a show. What would it be? And it was three couples in three different cities uh, taking the other two. Each couple would take the other two couples out. A lot of work, 
lot of work, long filming days, uh, chaotic, uh, because people were taking people out. Everyone was drinking and people just got drunker and drunker. <laughs> A long day of drinking. As the day went on and trying to manage them by the end of it was, was something else. Um, but yes, I remember, I remember meeting them. Tom was a part of our, our Galway couple at the time for that. Um, that was that was fun, but it was it was mad. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny the way those types of shows now are, you know, coming on because we, we're going to get to, I, I realised then as well, you had your own first date experience. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's funny how a lot of those shows have taken off, you know, the first dates, the Six in the City was a little like that kind of format and obviously Love Island and all these reality shows. So we're probably going to see more of those. Did you feel that Six and the City was a good format at the time, that it worked well? It, uh, it wasn't my format. I was brought in as a hired hand to direct it, uh, the pilot. Um, uh, so I, I, they would, the production company would then have worked on selling it, and I know they got a few commissions elsewhere. That was part of a thing, a project that RT ran for a while called the Format Farm, where they were looking for formats that they could get involved in seeding with the production company and with an international distributor. Because the thing about a format is if it's if it's if you can make it in one territory, you can make it in a million territories. You can make it all over the world. Like Big Brother. Big Brother was was a big one. Uh, uh, strict, strictly Come Dancing, uh, all those X Factor, local X Factor things. RT had great success back in the day with one, and that was the Lyrics Board. Oh yes, uh, the Lyrics Board, where the the uh, uh, two teams with a piano and Angus McAnally and Linda Martin was on it, and different people like this, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it, uh, it was the one show I. Never really want. I I was never a fan, but they wrote me in to do it once, <laughs> so I did. Um, but that sold all over the world. Um, Philip Campbell yeah. and Andy Ruan, who who came up with that idea, lived off that for a long time, and I was only jealous because I'd love to come up with a, a format that not only was a hit in the territory you originally make it for, but that you can then license local versions. So, who wants to be a millionaire? Is a classic example. We made an Irish version of it. Um, the weakest link, we made an Irish version of it. But it was being made all over the world. It was being sold all over the world. Yeah, essentially they're working like franchises. And even though you might make money, you still have to pay the original format farm or whoever had it. Absolutely. You have the originator. You Absolutely. So it's like, it's, like, it's like if you cover a song. You know, when you release the song, you have to pay the person who wrote the song. Um, some of them, uh, the copyright. Same thing. Same. They own the copyright. They own the creative copyright in the idea. Yeah, I remember in the. I I lived in Holland for a year in around nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, and um, I remember there used to be a program on there because I think, as far as I know, the first Big Brother came from the Netherlands, but they had another format. Yeah, they had another one, and it. Jan de Mol. Yes, yes. Yandemol, who went on, he was he, he was he 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 set up Endemol Productions. Yeah. Jan Yandemol is his name. He he, he co-owned Man United or large shares in Man United for a while, I believe. But yes, 
he was he was big into formats. They had they had another show, and I've never seen this in any other uh, station except the B, the ITV did something similar, and this was called the bus. And it was about these 20-somethings who were living on this bus and they would drive around city to city and have to do challenges and everything. Now, I know the BBC or ITV had a show where people would go on holiday on a bus and it was a little similar, but not the same. They weren't living on the bus. But I never saw that show outside Netherlands. Didn't RTE do one on a, on a ship oh. that went around a, a sailing and it, 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 it sank? <laughs> Literally. It, it hit rocks. It hit rocks and it, it sank. Oh, I thought you said the shore sank. No, no, the, 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 the boat, the sailing yacht of some description, big, big, big sailboat. I never saw that. Google it. I, I missed it too because I, I was in London at the time. Um, but I remember, I remember it was a big scandal over here. I remember reading about it over there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, placing a lot of pe- very different people in a small, close, confined space to see what happens you know, is is the basis of a lot of reality TV shows. What I like about, and you've mentioned it already, what I like about First Dates is that it's one it's a reality show that goes slightly against form in that it has heart. You look at Come Dine With Me, they want different people so that they'll spark, they'll rouse. You look yeah. at Big Brother, they put different people in, see who sparks up, who rouse, who fights. Um, wife Swap was the same thing. There's a new show now, Easing with the Enemy. Have you seen this? Yes, which is a version of Living with the Enemy that the BBC did a million years ago, where they put two diametrically opposed people together, you know, for what? Whereas First Dates genuinely tries to hook people up. It genuinely tries to bring people together who may be alike and who may have something in common and who may hit it off. That's what I like about it. And that's why when they asked me to do it, apart from the fact that I knew the production company who made it, the Irish version, and had worked for them before and really yeah. liked the idea, when they asked me to do it, I went, yeah, sure. I'm still single, ladies. Yeah. Still single, though. But, but what you said there is, I think that First Dates is a, really, it's a show where people go to meet each other in a restaurant, but it just happens to be being filmed. It's not a case of everything's fixed and set up. No, uh, and they're very clever with how they film it as well, uh, in that technology now is such that you can put moving cameras, you know, ones that can pivot and tilt. Um, you You can hide them anywhere almost. So you walk into the restaurant. There's no camera crews. There's camera crews outside. You do your interview beforehand and they film you arriving and whatever. But once you're in the restaurant, there's no, you're wearing a clip-on mic, uh, but there's no camera crews around the place. So the idea is that you quickly forget that the cameras are there. Uh, I suppose because I work in the business, I never forgot. Uh, So when I did it, there was always a little bit of a wariness. I didn't drink beforehand. I'd seen kids on it get drunk and make complete, you know, Ages themselves. Uh, so I, I didn't drink beforehand and I only had a glass of wine during it uh, or a cocktail or something. Um, but at one stage, Gemma, who I'm still in touch with, she's great because we actually yeah. have music in common and we went to a few gigs yeah. since and then COVID happened, so I haven't seen her in ages. But um, uh, at one point, you know, she went to the loo 
And I kind of sat there uh, and kind of just sat there waiting. And I said, right, I'll give them about 20 or 30 seconds now of my waiting face. <clears throat> so that if they need to use it in the edit, they'll have it. So I kind of just sat there. And then I went, right, that's enough. And then I went, right, where are the cameras? Right, there's one. I see that one over there. There's one. And they were like, stop, stop. Oh, man, he stopped doing that. They were going, oh, look, he gave us 30 seconds at the top. He knows what he's doing. So, and I was finished yeah. counting them by the time Gemma came back. Because you knew kind of what it entailed and the production methods and everything, were you nervous about, yeah. were you, like, were you more nervous about the production of the show or the date? That's a good question. It's so long ago, I don't really remember. I wasn't hugely nervous going down to it. I remember you come up an, an escalator to the reception in the hotel. It was in the point. It's in the point, isn't it? It's the, it's the hotel opposite the point uh, theatre, yeah. Um can never remember the name of it. Um, but you, the reception is on the ground floor. It's a really odd design. You go up an escalator. And I remember standing on it as it went up and I went, what are the chances of anything coming of this? Yeah, they're very slim, aren't they? So don't get too excited about it. So I, I didn't. I, I did it for, yes. I did it for, not quite for the shits and giggles, but I did it for a laugh. I really didn't think I was, you know, the chances of meeting the love of my life there, I thought, were very, very slim. So I didn't worry too much about it. But you made a friend. Exactly. So, you know, I'm uh, delighted I did it. I'm delighted I did it. Um, uh, I noticed they haven't asked me back. Like, obviously, you know, from being in, behind the mic or behind the camera for all those years, when they originally asked you to do it, were you kind of very reluctant thinking, no, no, I know how this stuff plays out. You didn't mind. No, I, because I'm a fan of, of it. Uh, I was on my way to London. I was in Dublin Airport when my mobile phone rang and I recognised the number as being the production company. And uh, the, the person who called said, how are you, Pat? Uh, it's whoever here. Now, it's not oh, great. How are you? Listen, if you're not asking me to appear on first dates, you can. I'm going to sue. <laughs> really? Are you asking me? And she said, well, yeah. Oh, great. Love to do it. No way. And I had said to, I'd said to them before, I'd said to them, I'd love to do it. I said someday. Um, not really thinking they'd take me up on the offer, but they did. So no, I, 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 I do it again. Uh, and now I know which ways. The one thing that I thought was very childish of them is you walk up the corridor to the restaurant and there's two doors yeah. in and they've locked the first one. And it, but everyone reaches for the first one to open it. It's the second one that you open. The left hand. The left hand, the far one. Now, wh why would they do this? You know why they did that? They did that for the giggles, so that they have a compilation. Of, and I've seen the, 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 the promo went out of everyone trying to open the door that's locked. And, of course, you then try and pull this one, and if it's not working, you push it. And then do you push the next one, and eventually you get it. And it's hilarious, but it's deliberate, and it was childish. Well, it, it, it's crazy, isn't it, the way... TV minds think about production and entertainment and like because some shows like really ridicule guests at their expense but then other shows are like that's ah, just a bit of fun but they make promos of it and people are like really did you have to do that <laughs> yeah well uh, you see you know I've had flatmates over the years and I will be watching either a movie or uh, a TV uh, a documentary or a, you know a game show or whatever and I'm 
often, not always, but often, they, ah, look if they did that, and that. Well, why are they doing that? And they're going, would you stop? Just enjoy it. And I said, well, I, I mean, I, you know, we all bring different baggage to whatever. And this is the baggage I bring. It means that I'm fussier so that if something is bad, it really annoys me. But if something is good, I love it. And uh, But it's the same for you with music. You play the guitar. So you hear an album. You hear an album differently than I hear it. I play, I play mean air drums. Being a musician as well, it's like I started off playing the guitar, but then when I started playing bass, then you really start listening to the bass more in the song. So everything has its own thing, you know? So, so I, yeah. I was told, oh, yeah, I yeah, did yeah. a podcast with JP McMahon. He's the Michelin star chef in Galway. He's from uh, D- Dublin. But he was saying, he said, sometimes when he's watching TV with his friends, he he's going, oh, look, at he, there's a scene, a murder scene or some kind of a scene, but they might have been cooking beforehand. And he's saying to his friends, watch, look how they're making the pie. And they're like, will you shut up? We're watching the movie. Forget about the cooking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you can't. I mean, everyone brings different baggage to different things. So, you know, if you're a hairdresser and you're watching <laughs> Educating Rita, the movie, you know, you're looking at, at, at how they, they're cutting the hair all wrong, yeah, you know, yeah, or whatever, got, or no what you're wearing or whatever. So, it, you know, we all, you all, you, everyone has a different, that's why no one reacts the same to any piece of art or creativity or you know whatever especially with stuff that's you know recorded or edited in some way because sometimes you see some terrible continuity in movies or tv shows and then when you see it once or twice then you look at other shows and you go right they broke the window on that car will it be broken in the next scene and it is and you're like oh that's good someone's paying attention yeah or the other thing is you're watching especially in drama and something happens and you say, now, do I have to make a mental note of this? Will this turn out to be pivotal later on? Or are they just throwing it in for because they're being quirky? And as you watch it, you get to realize, all right, OK, the style of it is just they're being quirky or the style of it is that they're dropping little hints as you go there's you know yeah can i ask you obviously because you were you know involved <laughs> i can't ask you with 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 production and direction did you ever want to move into film you know what did you ever get any offers to pr- do production or direction in, in movies i've never worked in drama um i have one movie idea but it's only a general thing and it, it it's kind of here and what happens underneath could go a million different ways so i've ne- i've talked to a few people about it but it's never i've never taken it on anywhere because i don't know the people i don't know the industry um my only drama experience really was um ending up on the edit floor and that was uh the christmas edition of father ted where i was a priest but i was rubbish I had two lines or one line in the whole thing. So so you were a Father Ted priest? If you look at the Christmas special of Father Ted, again, I wrote a blog post about it uh, back in uh, an off-message blog post. But I, 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 I auditioned for and got a role in the... I, I wasn't... I didn't, someone, they asked me to audition, like they did for the commitments. I nearly got onto the commitments, except I wasn't a member of Equity. And by the time they were coming down to the small characters... Uh, they had to be in equity. They they didn't know that when they started off uh, auditioning. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I went down to Ennis Diamond and I filmed my little one-liner on a walkie-talkie. And then I got this lovely letter from the production company going, um, which I think I still have, because uh, I'm an awful hoarder. Um, thank you. We tried to include it, we, but we just ran out of time. And I wrote back to them and said, listen, don't worry about it. I'm not an actor, uh, you know, so if you drop me because I was rubbish, I, I won't take it personally. Uh, you know, I, I won't, I'll be disappointed, but not whatever. And then ever, yeah. many years later in a pub in London after watching an Ireland international footy game, um, there's a big crowd of us there, including Graham and Arthur, <laughs> who wrote Father Ted. And I remember saying to them, yeah. what's, what's the story? Someone brought it up. You know, weren't you in it? And I said, I was, yeah, I was on, yeah, but I didn't. And and I looked at two lads and said, lads, you know, for years I've been telling people it was because I was shit. And they would look at me and went, yeah, you were shit. Well, <laughs> Nailed it. And <laughs> the wrong way. That's the closest I've got to drama. I've never, I've never made drama. I've never produced. I've never directed. I've never, yeah. you know. Yeah, I saw there was some post on Facebook or something yesterday about, I think, the, the famous priests or 11 priests of Father Ted. And of course, you know, Graham Norton, Brendan Grace, and I can't remember the Bishop, Bishop Brennan and all that. Joe Rooney. Joe Rooney. Yeah. So yeah, they, be, they, yeah, be, yeah. they were quite famous in their own right and the cameos and everything. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. that would have been great. Maybe one day the footage will emerge. I hope not, because I'm sure it is shit. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to get on to you'd have to get on to uh, hat trick productions and see if they kept all the rushes, and then bribe them bribe them to burn it. <laughs> well, if we ever get Graham Linehan or any of those on the show on the podcast, I'm going to ask him about that. I'd say, come on, you have to pull it out. Yeah, I'd say he. Uh, no, I'd say now he has so little interest in that. You, you're wasting your time. Uh, no, I'd say that's lost forever. Lost in the annals. That's maybe. Well, you never know. You never know. It could be up in Sotheby's one day, you know. Um, <laughs> so, listen, let's uh, let's go on to your podcast. You know, I was listening actually to your 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 debut podcast, the one with Dave Fanning, and it's really good, you know. And so, what when you that was in two thousand and seventeen, wasn't it? What made you decide I'm going to do a podcast? What was it? Was it like were you not working much, or was it something you just always wanted to do? Neither. Um, I uh, set up the website about six years ago, uh, six or seven years ago now, Patamahani.ie, and I only set that up because I was out. I was out for a few pints one night, and someone who works in the PR end of the media business. Uh, towards at some stage during the night, said to me, "What's your uh, what's your website address?" And I, I don't have a website. I don't need a website. And I'm a freelancer, you know. So, and a lot of my freelance buddies would have had websites. I said, "I don't have one." She said, "What?" I said, "I don't need. I have social media. I have a mobile phone. People know I've emailed, you know. But you need a website." And I went, "I don't need a website." She said, "Meet me for coffee tomorrow morning, eleven o'clock." And I'll have five reasons why you need a website. And I met her for coffee the next morning and I walked out of that meeting, not only having paid for the coffee, but with more than five reasons why I needed a website. So I went off and I, I set one up um, uh, and uh, so the website has been going since I think about 2014 direction, I think, um, maybe 2015. Uh, anyway, so uh, 
when we when I was setting it up with uh, Jim, who 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 designed it with me, uh, who did all the kind of the behind the scenes mechanical stuff, make sure it worked. Um, I we had a menu across the top, and it said, you know, about. Uh, television, radio, and then it said blog. And I said, yeah, you can, you can take the blog out of there. I, I, you know, He said, well, before you do, you know how when people search Google and if they search for freelance Dublin TV producer, if they're, you know, in England, you know how you maximize the chances of your name coming up near the top? And I said, no, but of the feeling you're about to tell me. He said, one of the one of the ways is with a lot of traffic going to your website. People, Google will recognize it as something of importance and interest. And he said, if you just use it as a calling card for work you do, then you might only update it every, what, three, four, five, six months. And I went, yeah, that's right. He said, whereas if you do a blog, you know, you'll people will go to the blog and then they'll, you know, drift around the website and they'll have a nosy and whatever. So I said, oh, right, what will I write about? He said, that's entirely up to you. So I ended up writing about the media, which is, I suppose, what I know best. And I, I came up with the name Off Message. So Where did the name come from, Off Message? There was lots of potential names, but Off Message just sounded like it was, it wasn't On Message. It was a little bit, you know, uh, uh, yeah, kind of, yeah. you know, without it really Left being you know, rebellious. But because uh, you be very careful in this business, very small business, you don't want to piss off the people who will possibly employ you. So, again, there's a whole there's a blog post in there about how truthful people in the media are about when they talk about the media, talk about each other, even their paycheck can depend on it. So they've got to be very careful. <clears throat> so take everything they say with a grain of salt. Um, so. Uh, event about uh, the uh, podcast started to become a thing, and I I thought you know could easily become a podcast. So um, I talked to a few people about it and talked to them about the technical aspect of it and what would what I could get and what would what would work. And so I started doing them like Dave. You know, it's a very simple setup. I've a I've a Tascam recorder, I have two table mics, and then I'll use Audacity or whatever to edit on. You know. And it's very simple. I keep it simple, and we had a chat, and it 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 worked. And I was doing them every couple of months, and writing blogs in between, so blog, podcast, blog, podcast. And then COVID happened, and it knocked knocked seven shades of shit out of me. I really lost into. I haven't done one for. I did a. I did a. The last blog post I did was maybe March last year, where I did a, a thing about how the media was dealing with COVID. Uh, and the changes in work practice and people working from home and the technology, et cetera. And then uh, John Williams, the head of news and current affairs in RTE, was the last podcast I did, which was April last year. And that was about really talking about how, as a news organization, they had dealt with COVID, but also a little bit about how he got into the business and how he ended up at ex-BBC, how he ended up over here, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I haven't done one since. I haven't done either since. And yeah. It's because to what's, what else is there to talk about at the moment except COVID? And it's just, I, I just I thought, what else can I write about? And also, it's been a very tough year. 
like it. I, I, I've worked a little. I've done the odd gig. But COVID has knocked, like advertising has fallen off a cliff again, just like it did in 2008 uh, after the banking scandal. Um, and so all the media organizations are battening down the hatches. And, you know, early this year, uh, RT made their most recent uh, announcement about cutbacks. So a lot of the staff are taking a, a pay cut, but they're also going freelancers. Sorry, we can't afford to bring you in. So I don't know when I'll work next in RT. So you can you can understand that kind of the last year has been a bit miserable. Now, I'm better off than most people in that I have a place here. I'm not starving. I'm not broke. Um, I live on my own, which is tough when you're in lockdown. Um, but then I was airbnb the spare room here. That fell through as well. I loved that. I was meeting people from all over the world and, and I wasn't making very much money, but it was about paying the rent and just have you know meeting interesting people um yeah yeah and this place is too small for a, a flatmate so you re- i tried a flatmate a few times you know. so pat obviously you know with with things being quieter and production companies obviously closing down as well because of covid everything's yeah. quiet yeah everything's do you, quiet do you yeah, foresee yeah. you know are you getting back into the the swing of things within a year or so or do you think you know things would be different for you no idea no idea. Um, so I, um, I thought, like, I remember what I was making um, uh, the second series of You Couldn't Make It Up, the comedy news panel show we made for News Talk a couple of times. I remember the second one, uh, we were about, we were nearly finished it. We were exhausted, you know, it was, it, there were long weeks and we made 10 of them. And myself and my co-producer, Mark, we were just chatting one day uh, um, at the venue while the comedy writers were writing, Mark, I'm exhausted, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, I, you know what? If someone said to me, um, there's a job in a bar in Greece now, I said, because I spent time in Greece when I was a kid, I'd be very tempted. I'd really be very tempted. The problem now, of course, with COVID is that there are no jobs in bars in Greece. You know, there's no jobs anywhere. It's kind of like that, you know, that um, a good hitchhiker knows when to take a train thing that I said earlier, where if if things aren't. The problem at the moment is that there are no trains in the station. Like you, like your, your train isn't moving up from the platform. And neither are any of the other trains, you know. It's like, what else do you do? So I don't know. I can't predict. There is still stuff being made. Um, There are still commission, independent production companies are being commissioned. Uh, I presume, and I have no great insights into it, that it's beginning to take off again. So I have ideas with people. Uh, uh, you know, various ideas I have for, like, I've always been a pitcher of ideas. Very few of them get made, but um, it's a kind of pincer movement that, you know, any army general would be proud of. You know, you you go in with ideas on one hand and you wave your CV around on the other saying, what are you guys at? I I can help you there. Or here's an idea. And if you like the idea, well, they're kind of, you're, you're stuck with me. Um, so I have ideas in with various people. As I tend to say, at various stages of rejection. 
because most of them gone over. So this morning I got an email saying that that's highly unlikely. Uh, last week I got an email saying, no, that's not happening. So there's another big project and it, it, it might still happen. If not, I really, for the first time in my life, I have no idea where I'm going to go next or what I might do next or what's around the corner or like when I started off, I was a, I was a great hustler and I hustled me. I hustled ideas. Uh, I met people I was out and about. Um, I was young. I was enthusiastic. I was naive. In London, I was older. I was wiser, but I had uh, more experience. So I was able to bring a lot more to the. I wasn't shy of meeting people because I knew what I had and what I didn't have. Um, now the industry is such that I don't know where it's going. I don't know if I will be wanted because I'm I'm older, more experienced, but I'm more expensive. You know, the kids come in fresh out of college. Uh, they also know a hell of a lot more about the digital world, uh, possibly, than I do, even though I'm relatively up to speed. So... I, I, I don't know. For the first time ever, I'm, I have a huge question mark and I don't see a way out. So I'm intrigued to see where I, I'm. It's been a tough year. It's been hard. Um, and I've no idea. I can't give you a happy ending on this one. No, no, and, and I understand completely because, I mean, it doesn't matter what line of work you're in. If you depend on services or working with people or producing something, uh, there's very few outlets now and there's very little money. And, and the thing is that for, for you, you know, obviously, as you said, every year you get older, you kind of maybe say, oh, there's less radio gigs or less presenting gigs, but maybe there's more production gigs. But the money has to be there for that, too, no? Yes, exactly. Uh, if the money isn't there, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a matter of <clears throat> like if there's money there, you can make there are formats that are safe to make even in a COVID environment. Now, if I'm in the music business and performing, I'd, I'd be even more depressed than I am because how do you do a gig? You know, the, the flaming lips have tried it with the bubbles. and Yes, exactly. It's kind of like, I don't want to go to a gig like that. I don't want to go to a pub where I can't, you know, where I have to worry about keeping two meters from people and all that malarkey. So I probably won't go to pubs until they're properly back to, to normal. Maybe, I don't know. But um, uh, every industry has their own problems right now. My area of, I won't say expertise, but of certainly of experience is in media. Um, I'm sure I could do other things. I, I, I mean, I did other gigs before, you know, and along the way. Uh, but do I want to go and make the shift and go right and chase gigs there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, like I'm nearly sixty, so you know, if I'm knocking on their door, going, "Can I drive your bus, please?" I'm kind of going, "You'll be retired in five years' time. Why would we t train you and take you?" Do you know what I mean? It's so. So I don't know. I, I'm 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 scratching my head on this one. I I haven't given up. Uh, I, I I can't. You know, I need to eat. I need. To, yeah. But I don't have the answer. 
Yeah, but hopefully I think things will work out for you because you have, as you said, a wealth of experience. And I think, you know... But there's nothing right or fair in the world. It might and it might not. No, there's not. And unfortunately, this is the thing. The world isn't predicated on fairness. It's on survival. Uh, And it works and we're just... It doesn't worry about the you know the the individual uh, individuals running around on it once the overall thing works. So it might work out for me. It might not. I might have to sell my body to science fiction or something. Or you know I don't know. I I don't know. Uh, I, I I'm I I'm at the I don't know stage and I've been at it for many months now and I really don't. Well, yeah, but you know, next time you call me, I'll be busy. Or, or else I'll be somewhere. You could be there one day going, um, you know, I have this brilliant idea and pitch it and they'll accept it. And you go, wow, this is really working out. All we need now is a good presenter from Galway. And you go, look at, I've made the two of ours day. <laughs> a good presenter from Galway. There's a thing. I know you're There's something I haven't talked about for a while. <laughs> so, but the, the thing I think looking back, you know, you've had a great career and I don't want to say that like it's over, but even if nothing ever happened for you again and you were forced into a kind of early retirement to go to Greece and, you know, to have a great time, I think you can be proud. I, I would say you should be proud of all the work you've done. I mean, you've you've worked in all mediums and it's been brilliant, you know? Yeah. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Someone was saying something kind of similar to me recently. I don't think I've achieved a fraction of what I could potentially have. Or I think I've had some peaks along the way, but I've never had like when we made Reporters at War. I thought, and 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 it won the Emmy, and every all the all the TV. Uh, networks in the States wanted to meet and loved my ideas and whatever, and then nothing came of any of them. Again, I wrote a blog post on it uh, about going to New York, and partially it's Steven Spielberg's fault, but you're going to have to read the blog to Mm, find out why. Um, uh, (laughs) uh, So I thought I was going to go on to be a world-renowned documentary maker you know who would make serious documentaries important documentaries that never happened um you know back in the day when i was filling in for dave i thought i'm going to get a music radio program here i mean i hustled it i asked often enough i pitched ideas it wasn't that i was just sitting there waiting for them to come to me but obviously i was in the wrong place at the wrong time and it never happened and it hasn't happened since i came back so um uh i think i've i've scraped along i think i've i've you know i've i've moved in and out but i've never i've never i've never attained that consistency that one looks at the the greats and even some of the not so greats i th- i think that's part of the whole entertainment industry though whether it be music or acting or presenting or anything it's very, very tough. And, and you know, I have a sister who's an actress and she'll tell you it's the hardest life ever. And, and the thing is, you can get some good work, but then you get no work forever, you know, for months and months. Or, so entertainment's really difficult and it's very hard to make money from it at the best of times. And 
what, like what do you do? Do you give up or do you keep plugging away and hope you have a hit that lasts a few months? And it's really difficult. I've written uh, I've written the lyrics of two songs as well. I just don't <laughs> Maybe know that's your do. next career. <laughs> Maybe who knows? But I, know. I I I I sat I sat down one day and I went. I, I had a phrase in my head and I went. There's a song in there. And then I thought, oh, that works. Well, I have another phrase here, and I so I, and then I kind of I don't know I don't know what yeah, to do. With even it. if you if you feel you can't sing, you can do spoken word or spoken poetry. There's all types of avenues. Well, no, I would I would I would I would I would, I would hope that someone with a better ear for a melody would 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 write the tunes to go with them. I just have the lyrics. Yes, yes, yes. And then they could sing them and I could sit in the background and count, count the cash, cash as it come, rolls in, in, in large sums. Oh, sure, it'll be. Or we'll have to get a bit of bigger letterbox. Bigger letterbox. So listen, I'm going to let you go, Pat. You know, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. And I mean, very insightful and I've loved hearing some of your stories of working in RT and the BBC and, and you know, congratulations on everything you've done. It's been brilliant. And, you know, I've obviously had to research you a little bit, but I'm going to research you a lot more now, I think, because you've, 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 you can, I'm going to be reading your blogs now on everything. You can, you can become my stalker now. I can become your stalker. Yeah, you'll have to have the Airbnb room for me when I come to stay. Oh, you know? Lord, you're barred. You're barred. <laughs> So listen, um, thanks very much. And, you know, who knows Pleasure. in the future again, we'll have you on the show. And I hope things work out for you this year or next year. And who knows when you get that next big gig, you know, you'll be smiling and going, I knew it had happened. So hopefully yeah, that you're not the You're not the only one. So does my bank manager. So does yes. the tax man. So everybody. everybody. <laughs> so listen, Pat, thank you very much. And, you know, as I said, it's been a pleasure. So Pat Omani, everybody. Simon, thank you. Take care. Okay, thank you very much, Pat. That was a very interesting conversation and uh, thank you for sharing your life so far with us and very interesting stories. Moving on to next week's guest. Next week's guest is Ola Machigadumi and Ola is a freelance journalist and writer, a 2FM researcher, an Irish language broadcaster, public speaker, board member for Horus Nagelga and Mother Tongues Ireland and also a voiceover artist. So we're looking forward to speaking to Ola and that should be a very interesting conversation. So please try to join us. Okay, everybody, have a lovely day, have a lovely week, and take care of yourselves and look after each other, and we'll talk to you the next time we're here. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.